as I think about this week, I hope that you meditate on the fact that we do have a God where nothing compares uh, to being in his arms. Nothing compares to knowing him. And um, he is the light of the world. And he has revealed himself clearly to the world. And we can celebrate that fact um, because we know him. The Bible in Corinthians calls it an aroma of life unto life. Those who know Jesus, he's a sweet smelling aroma. In the same breath, those who don't know Jesus, he's an aroma of death unto death. And so we have to talk about these things. We have to understand these things. We have to think about these things. We have to be faced with these things. Um, Hiding from them, shielding your eyes, it doesn't make them go away. You know, there's a game that I play with my kids, and you've all done it. You've, I guarantee you've all done it. And um, they'll, put the bl- they'll, put, they'll be playing around, and they'll put a blanket over their head. I mean, they have to be young enough, obviously. But they'll put a blanket over their head, and you'll be like, where did so-and-so go? And they're under the blanket laughing, ha, 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 because they think they've, like, disappeared. And it's, honestly, it's a lot of our coping mechanism for dealing with the hard things of Scripture, right? We put the blanket over our head, and we think that if we are just covered, even though it's blatantly, there's a big lump in the middle of the room, it's obvious that something's there. Even though we just cover ourselves up and we just avoid the subject altogether or hide from talking about it or thinking about it, that we're, it's just gone, which is not the truth. You know, the only way to really re, um, remediate maybe, um, the issues uh, that we have with the wrath of God and things like that is to approach those things head on, not to avoid them. And so we're going to continue like we have been for the last few weeks. And we're our third sermon in a three-part series on the wrath of God. The wrath of God um, is not something that we often discuss. I think a lot of Christians uh, think that the wrath of God is for someone else, uh, and in in the truest sense it is, or we don't think about the fact that every Christian will face judgment relative to where we stand in Christ, of course, but every Christian and every non-Christian alike will will face judgment. Um, We will, on some level, and I can't explain it to you exactly how it happened, how it will happen. We will, on some level, have to give account for what we've done on this earth. For Christians, we know that we trust in the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, meaning as our substitute, he took our wrath, he took our sin. Uh, We have his righteousness. He substituted our righteousness for his righteousness, and we have faith in him, and we're Christians, and so we don't face the wrath in the truest sense. But for non-Christians, we have to face the fact that if they die without knowing Jesus, without trusting in that substitutionary atonement of Christ, they will spend an eternity under the wrath of God uh, in a place called hell. This is not a figurative place. It's a literal place. The wrath of God is real. It's a theme. It's a major theme in the book of Romans. 
the wrath of God, but also how great his salvation is. Paul spoke vividly of the wrath of God. He quotes Moses in Romans 12 when he says, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. He mentioned it again in Romans 2 and Romans 5 and Romans 6 and in multiple places. But Romans 2, he says, Because of your impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath. Remember, it's that orge word. The, 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 it's a development. It's a storing up. It's not just this you know, childish wrath that God has. We know Romans 6, the wages of sin is death. Romans 5 says that we are justified by his blood and much more we will be saved from his wrath. It, it might surprise you that Paul didn't speak of wrath, of the wrath of God the most of anyone in the New Testament. Do you know who did? It was the pale skin, wouldn't hurt a fly, wimpy, long-haired, hippie, often mischaracterized Jesus. Jesus was the one that spoke of the wrath of God the most. He spoke on hell more than any other New Testament figure. It goes to reason that he would speak on hell because he was the creator of hell. He created hell. If you hadn't taken your logic all the way to that point yet, that might have surprised you this morning. If you hadn't taken our sermons to that logical conclusion. He was a creator of hell, so it would make sense that he spoke on it. He didn't just talk about hell. He let us know through the New Testament writers what it was like. He called it a place of torment. A place of unquenchable fire. Where the worm never dies. Where people gnash their teeth in anguish and regret. In the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, he described, which I, honestly I don't think is a parable at all, but I think it's a real life account. But he told the rich man that he could not leave even to warn his family of their impending doom. Jesus called hell Gehenna, which was the maggot infested burning trash dump outside of Jerusalem. Jesus knew of hell because he created hell. And he warned against denying him which secures a person's eternal destination there. Skeptics and Christians alike want to know what Jesus thinks all the time. Well, what does Jesus say? Jesus never said that. Now, you need to know this if you haven't already, and I think I've told you this a thousand times. Although the words recorded of Jesus are important, they are no more important than the words recorded of Paul. Because they were still inspired by the same God, written by the same God, written by the hand of man. But Jesus spoke of hell with certainty and as an absolute reality. Most importantly, he spoke of hell as the destination for all of those who reject Christ. If there was any doubt in your mind after the first two sermons of the absolute reality of the existence of the wrath of God... And his place of punishment, hell, I hope it's gone. So it is with great sense of urgency, as the New Testament author says, we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. It is with great sense of urgency that we warn the world of their personal need and the door to follow God. 
want us to turn our attention to the last sermon in this three-part section on the wrath of God today, and it's from Romans 1, 18 through 23. Will you pray with me that we, our mind and our eyes might be opened to the truth of God? Father, would you please open our hearts to see you? Lord, so easily we accept your love, so easily we accept your grace and mercy, your kindness, your goodness, your faithfulness. Lord, those are all a part of your perfections, but how difficult is it for us to accept another part of your perfection, and that is your wrath, your righteous indignation towards, your, towards sin. Lord, would you teach us to trust in you, to understand your wrath, so that we may appreciate in the fullest sense that we can our salvation and we may proclaim to a lost and dying world their great need for Jesus. We love you. We praise you. Would you open our hearts to your word? It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So the last few weeks we've discussed the wrath of God. And in those times we've really examined the wrath of God and how his wrath is just and our punishment is deserved. And in addition to discussing the wrath of God, I hope that I've done a sufficient job of not just talking about the negative, but also pointing you to the love and the grace that is in opposition to the wrath of God. The love and the grace that is extended through the cross of Christ that is ours or can be ours. Last week we extended the message of the wrath of God by stating three reasons that we deserve the wrath of God. The first reason that we deserve the wrath of God was because we have rejected the clear revelation of God. We have rejected the clear revelation of God. The Bible says in Romans 1, 18-23, what can be seen of God is clear. It is seen through His invisible attributes, His divine nature, His eternal power, that the world is without excuse. Today I want to spend our time looking at the last two reasons, well not the last two, but the last two reasons we will discuss, the last two reasons we will discuss as to why we deserve the wrath of God. The second is this, the first was we've rejected the revelation of God, the second is we have suppressed the truth, and the third is we have given God's glory to another. We have suppressed the truth, we have given God's glory to to another. We deserve the wrath of God because we have suppressed the truth. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Friends, since the fall of mankind, really even before that, but since the fall of mankind, man has been faced with his own mortality. The truth is that out of the garden that the Lord told Adam that he and Eve were going to die, and that just wasn't for those two, but it was for all of humanity, death came to humanity. And since that time, man has answered, had to answer this question. What happens when I die? What happens when I die? Or what is my eternal 
destination. And one way that men suppress the truth is by creating or propagating false teaching about the eternal destination of mankind. There are many conjectures as to the eternal destination of man, but there are two that come from evangelical sects that I would like you to recognize. There is this idea that death is actually the last stop. That if you live your 70 plus years, if you are blessed and you're blessed, and then you die, and then there is nothing. That the body goes into the ground, and then you don't wake up, you don't suffer, but you cease to exist. Now, there are different variations of this. One that's very popular amongst uh, Christians, even Christians that I, uh, even men who I think are godly men who have, who have taught well, theologians I would consider, is called annihilationism. Which means that you just are burnt up. You just die and then you cease to exist. It, it sounds nice in theory. A death where those who reject God are not actually punished for their sin. Or their punishment is actually separation from God, but they won't really feel the effects of it because they will be no more. But friends, there is absolutely zero way of, of, of proving this from Scripture. It's not in Scripture. We cannot see this in the text of the Holy Scriptures. The only place it comes is from a narrow mortal view of what God should do with His wrath. The other idea that is commonly accepted is universalism. This is the idea that every human soul will eventually be reconciled to God because of God's great and deep and rich love and mercy. Now this is more tricky because this pulls right at the heartstrings. We have, we have seen a massive amount, and we see a massive amount in Scriptures about the love of God and the mercy of God. His love and mercy are great and far-reaching from on generation to generation to generation. But friends, you need to know that His love and mercy do not trump the other characteristics of God. It is important to know that love and mercy are one of God's, are two of God's perfect characteristics. They are His perfections. But it is also important to remember that He is perfect in His wrath also. There are no scriptures that would develop a good argument for the rejection of hell and the wrath of God. Another way men suppress, suppress the truth is by denying the invisible attributes of God. This is what Paul said. He said, they deny, they suppress the truth. They deny his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature. Now, this is more commonly done by rejecting God simply because the people that reject him don't like what he looks like. They don't like what he looks like. They don't like what the Bible says about him. The reason this is true is because those invisible attributes say some mighty heavy things about God. And that if people agree that the Bible is right with what it says about God, then there is a lot of explaining to do. There is a lot of action that must be taken in a person's life if they're willing to accept Him. His sovereignty is one of those invisible attributes that people don't like. This is not just non-Christians. This is Christians alike. 
His sovereignty is one of those attributes that people don't like. If you accept the sovereignty of God, here's why they don't like it. If you accept the sovereignty of God, you have to accept that the world was created by Him, that it's sustained by Him, and that it must be organized and run according to His rules and not ours. The sovereignty of God is something that people reject because there is finality. There is a definitive and objective truth about the nature of God that requires God to look much different than what we want Him to look like. The sovereignty of God notes to us that we are not the gods of our own life, but we are subject to a greater and singular God. Now for those who are in Christ, remember it's that sweet smelling aroma. To know that there is a God of the universe, that He created us, that He loves us, that He cares for us, that He lives in us, that we are to do things by His order. But not only that, that we can know His order, we can know how to follow Him and love Him. For those who are in Christ, it should be great security that God is sovereign. But to those who don't know Him, to those who don't know Him, it's a, it's a fragrance of death because what we actually find his is that we are nothing like him. And unless we seek him as he is, we can't know the answers of life. Those who reject God, the sovereignty of God is scary for another reason. Because it flies in the face of the basic human desire for autonomy. This was the problem in the garden, was it not? Adam wanted autonomy. God gave him everything that he needed to survive, and yet he withheld one thing. One thing. And Adam saw that tree as being the only thing that kept him from autonomy. Because he could be like God if he had that tree. And if you look deeply enough, you will see that a need for autonomy is the biggest desire in our culture today. I will decide what is appropriate dress for me. I will decide who I will sleep with. I will decide what gender I am. I will decide what to do with my body. And the list goes on. And in a search for autonomy, mankind has wrecked itself in, in parody and contradiction. If you watch most progressive groups today, they end up cannibalizing themselves because there is no absolute measure to follow. What the goal is, is to be the most woke person in the room. So you will see it on social media. Some will, someone will say, men can have babies. And then they will get destroyed because you'll hear someone else say, well, what you, said, what you are doing when you are saying men can have babies is you are not considering non-binary people. Because, because you're not considering people who don't claim to, to be man or woman. You're not being considerate. And the list goes on and on and on. Pretty soon you will not be able to remember the letters of the LBTQJ plus XYZ community. Because everyone is trying to be more woke than the next person. This is ultimately just people trying to prove their autonomy. And this comes from the rejection of a sovereign God. Because God says, this is my creation, I'm upholding it with my providential hand, and my rules are the ones to follow. And mankind who does not uh, adhere to that, who does not trust in that and hope in that, 
does everything they can to not just reject it, but to absolutely go to the opposite end of the spectrum. The desire for autonomy is the rejection of God's sovereignty. The world is in search of autonomy. It rejects God's sovereignty because he says these are the rules to follow and I'm the king to enforce it. The the world in in a search for autonomy also rejects his holiness. His holiness is another way of rejecting his his divine attributes. He's a divine attribute, an invisible attribute of his that we reject. He is set apart and different in all of his ways. He is holy in his divinity. There is none like him. And if you reject his holiness, you say there are many like him. Matter of fact, hundreds of thousands. You can be like him. Everybody's like him. He is Holy in his divinity. We reject his holiness by saying that there is more than just him. He is holy in his will. His will is going to be done on earth as it is in heaven. His will will be done. And he's holy in his will. But if you agree to that, if you agree that he is holy in his will, it means that our will cannot be done apart from his will. And we have to surrender to his will. And we have to give up. And we have to humble ourselves. He is holy in His will. He is holy in His wrath and righteousness. If you look at God as being holy in His wrath and you say, look, this, this, this wrath is not right. This is mean. If you accept that He's holy in His wrath, you have to accept that His wrath is what it is, just as He says it is. And His righteousness is what it is, just for those He says that it's for. God is holy And not only set apart, he sets an impossible standard to follow by human means. But he also takes the ethical decision out of human hands. Truth becomes objective when God's holiness is put at first hand. When God draws the line in the sand. Do you know what's worse than all of this for the person who rejects God? It's not, ju- it's not just his sovereignty. It's not just his holiness. It's his immutability. That's the worst. The fact that he does not change. He is immutable. Because here's the deal. We can stomach a sovereign king for a moment, right? If we have a bad president, all we have to do is wait four to eight years. Or if the Democrats have their way, three. And, and, uh, and, and we can get rid of him, Right? We can get rid of him. A person can't wait out a sovereign God. They cannot get out from under his rule. People can get behind a God who is temporarily holy, right? Anyone can be good for a moment. But if he is eternally holy and expects others to be holy as he is holy, what then can we do? To know that God is immutable changes a game because it confirms what we already have known. There is no victory in autonomy. There is no victory in self-dependence or independence from God. There is only victory in faith and submission to Christ and trusting in His righteousness. It alone 
can save. It alone can free us to actually be free. In the garden, Adam was as free as he ever was because he lived under the submission and the protection and the care of the creator of the universe. And once out of that bubble of God's protection, Adam was forced to deal with things that he had not previously dealt with like death and hate and toil, hard labor, all of the things that are results of the fall. Autonomy is freedom, but it's not the freedom that you expect when you finally get it. It is freedom from God's protection. It is freedom from a light and easy yoke. It is freedom from salvation. You know, oftentimes, who is one of the greatest perpetrators of suppressing this truth? Those who claim Christ. Instead of shaping our churches to look like biblical churches, we shape our churches to look like what we think the world thinks of God. We dumb down, we wimpify, we pacify, we make this sad excuse for a God. We offer a God worth tolerating, but not a God worth serving. We offer a God worth living for, but not a God worth dying for. If men and women of the church would stand up for truth, it would go a long way in reaching a lost and dying world and also redeeming our daily lives for Christ. There's one more reason we'll discuss today as to why we deserve the wrath of God, and that is this. We have given God's glory to another We have given God's glory to another. Look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. At some point, friends, we've all been guilty of misplaced glory. We've all been guilty of glorifying ourselves or another. When we work hard or we do something or we're successful on a project or in our labor, we say, good job, so-and-so. It's good to encourage people and stuff like that, but we've all been guilty of putting a little bit too much encouragement in the man. When a woman gives gives birth to a baby, we, we give glory for her labor and perseverance, which we should. But also, we should give glory to the God who preserved her life during that moment. When a team does well, we give glory to the coaching staff and the players. Except almost every award-winning football player, first and foremost, would like to give glory to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Except those guys. We can look at these in other ways and see how we might give God's glory to another. Giving God's glory to another is attributing the things of God anywhere else but Him. Giving God's glory to another is attributing the things of God to anywhere or anyone else but Him. In Scripture, we see this most vividly in the passage of uh, Scriptures we studied not too long ago in the golden calf, story of the golden calf in Exodus. The people of God got impatient waiting on Moses and they formed an idol. And they worshiped that idol by saying, these are the gods that brought us out of Egypt. I actually think this is the scene Paul has in mind as he's 
writing these verses out for us today. As he's writing these verses out for us long ago that we could read today. This is the scene Paul had in mind. They exchanged the immortal for the images of the mortal, Paul says. Giving God's glory to another is attributing the things of God anywhere else to but him. But Paul says giving God's glory to another is something else. It's worshiping idols. Now we may look at this and say, I don't have any carvings in my house. I don't have idols that I worship. But idols appear in much more than just the carvings, although there are still carvings. I believe this to be true, friends, that the images that the Catholic Church give, gives honor to and reverence to, they are idols. It is idolatry. The statues of Mary, the statues of the saints, idolatry. That's a, I guess that's another sermon somewhere else. But worshiping idols... That's another way we give the glory of God to another. I've thought through some idols, some ways we worship idols that might help you today. We worship other people. We worship other people. This can include famous people, but often it includes people to sleep that, uh, that sleep in our house at night. You can idolize a person for what, you, what they have done, or even maybe you can make your children into little idols so, you can be, so they can be something that you weren't. So they can give you fulfillment into being something that you weren't. People looked at Tim Tebow as he was playing sports and he was a Christian. He was a legit Christian. And they looked at Tim Tebow and they said, These are the gods that will bring Christianity into the main culture. They look at Chick-fil-A and what Chick-fil-A stands for and they say, This is the god that will bring Christianity into the main culture. We look at our children and they, these are the gods that will give me uh, this fulfillment that I didn't have when I was younger. They look at our wife, this is the God that will bring me happiness that I didn't get from my mom or my dad or, or that will extend to the happiness that I did get from my parents. So these idols could be, as far as being an idol, they could be an entertainer or a pastor it could be a spouse or a child, but what we do is we say, these are the gods that fill in the blank. It could be a lifestyle. Idolatry comes in the form of a lifestyle, keeping up with the American lifestyle, making great dreams and goals that revolve around finances and prosperity and personal security. Friends, I'm here to tell you, and you recognize this because all of you are at a different level, more than likely a better level than you were when you were in your early 20s. But at every level of attainment, every level of attainment, there is not contentment. At every level of containment, do you know what there is, uh, of attainment, do you know what there is? A stronger desire to attain more. At every level of attainment, you're, you look around you, and you're not around the same little plebeians you were around before, right? You're around a different set of people. Sooner or later, you want to make those people your plebes. You want a different level of attainment. You want what these people have up here. Keeping up with an American lifestyle that revolves around finances and prosperity and personal security is idolatry. And you say, $100,000 in the bank is enough to be the God to make me content. 
A million dollars is enough to make me not want more. If I could just leave my, 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 my wife and my children with a, a 401k that when I, when I die, or a life insurance policy that when I die, they're going to be safe. This is the God that gives me security. This is the God that gives me peace when I go to bed at night. And we look at our check, and we, or we look at our bank account online, and we think, oh, this is it. And then the next day, the next day, it's literally not enough anymore. Lifestyle, keeping up with finances and prosperity and personal security. Rights and freedom, rights and freedom is idolatry. No one in this world is promised the same freedom as the next person. Now, you need to hear me. This does not mean that you should, I'm not trying to, I'm not going to imply that you should stop standing up for freedoms, that you should stop standing up for American freedoms, for the Second Amendment, or for other things that you believe in. We are not promised, friends, equal rights and freedoms. Freedom in Christ is exponentially more valuable than the freedom we can get in America in any pursuit. When our pursuit of personal rights and freedom surpasses our pursuit of Christ, we have displaced the glory of God. What happens if you have unfettered access to guns? You'll say, this is the God that gives me protection at night. But does it? I'm not saying, again, I'm not saying, listen, I'm a, I'm a pro-Second Amendment. I'm fighting for that. What happens when you have all of the rights? Here's the deal. Here's why we pursue those things. Because often we'll never reach them and we'll never have to answer why we still don't feel fulfilled when we find them. Do you understand that? That's huge. That's huge. The reason we can pursue these things with passion and fervor is because we'll often never get what we pursue so we don't have to answer why we still feel unfulfilled at the end of finding our biggest hopes and dreams. I'm going to list a few more, but I'm not going to go into depth. Social media can be an idol. It could be from a follower count to amount of retweets to the amount of hearts or whatever. Science can be an idol. Science can be an idol. Your pride or your ego can be an idol. Never letting anyone in. Being too prideful to know, to let everybody know what they already know about you, and it's that you're broken and in need of Jesus. The fulfillment of other self goals that you can think about and discuss on your own. Friends, your church can be an idol. Looking at Vintage Church and knowing that we have a lot of things right and saying, this is what's going to bring, these are the gods that's going to bring us to Christian development and maturity. It's only this one. It's only this one. Your church can be an idol. Even your challenges can be an idol. I hesitate to say this. Cancer can be an idol. Do you understand what I'm saying? Does that make any sense to you? Health issues can be an idol. 
You can prop yourself up or others can prop you up. This is probably not going to be on my top 10 hits of things I've ever said. Um, But people will say, look how strong they are. Look how they've overcome. These These are the gods that healed us from cancer. Your challenges in life can be an idol. Because at the end of your challenges, you have to decide, or sometime in your challenges, you have to decide whether you were the one that got you out of it or whether it was the God of the universe. Whether it was by your strength or your power or your might or by his. It's easy for us to take our eyes off God. It's easy for us to take our eyes off the Lord with all, all of the distractions that we have in our life and to create idols in our life. I know that often glorifying God can seem abstract, but what does it really mean to glorify God? I think glorifying God means to acknowledge his greatness and to give him honor by praising and worshiping him because he alone deserves to be praised, honored, and worshiped. To acknowledge his greatness and give him honor by praising and worshiping him because he alone deserves to be praised and honored and worshiped. And friends, a major part of the worshiping of God is offering. So we acknowledge that he is great. We give credit to where credit is due. And then what do we do? We give our life as an offering. We ascribe to the Lord praise. And then we give our lives as an offering. It's no more difficult than that. But we must pray and pray hard that God would root out idolatry in our own life. We must pray and pray hard that he would give us strength to fight that idolatry that keeps popping back up. Because friends, listen, until you die, or until Jesus returns, if he does before you die, you will fight the sin of idolatry. It's just a fact. So we need to pray hard that God roots out that idolatry in our life, and we need to pray that he gives gives us the strength to face it. And we must trust Jesus as the only sufficient way to heal us from the idolatry and push us to giving him glory and him alone. Pray with me. Lord, you are so good. We trust you because you are holy. You are perfect in all of your ways. Lord, would you let us, the first thing that we do, at every moment of praise, glorify you. At every moment of worry and doubt, every trial, every tribulation, the first thing that we do, glorify you. And then be resolved, Lord, as believers to give our life as an offering every day. God, would you help us to trust you? Would you help us to love you? Would you help us to understand that if we are in Christ, we are a new creation. We are no longer under the wrath of God, but we are seated well in the arms of the Father. We love you and we praise you and we pray and ask that you would just teach us from your word and help us to take it and apply it to our lives. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.